Good afternoon, and welcome to the Hudson Institute. I'm delighted to have such a distinguished team of speakers here with us today. I'll make just a few quick introductory remarks. Recently, Secretary of State John Kerry delivered a major policy speech here in D.C. In the middle of his speech, Secretary Kerry made the following comment about the state of democratic governments across Latin America. The Western Hemisphere is unified in its commitment to pursuing successful democracies, but one exception, of course, remains Cuba. Unfortunately, Cuba is not the only exception. In fact, no fewer than five Latin American countries, Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and Argentina, have become elected autocracies led by populists who have kept the superficial trappings of democracy while persecuting political opponents, attacking independent media outlets, and seeking near dictatorial control over public institutions. As a result, the rule of law in these nations has been either crippled or demolished. Today's conference will focus on Argentina, a nation admired for its beautiful nature, its education, its literature, the country of Jorge Luis Borges and Julio Cortázar, and of course, the land of tango, Carlos Gardiel, Agustin Magaldi, Hugo del Carril, and of course, Astor Piazzolla. And yes, Argentina is the land of football, the land of Messi. Unfortunately, it's also a country where press freedom has been trampled, where newspapers, journalists, and researchers have been targeted for political reasons, and where judicial independence has effectively been eradicated. The Kirchner government has weakened opposition media outlets with its controversial 2009 anti-monopoly law, and also with other authoritarian tactics. And this, just to give you an example. Last February, Argentine supermarkets and electronic retailers told the Wall Street Journal that the government had ordered them to stop advertising in the country's top newspapers. Meanwhile, the Kirchner government has repeatedly seized private, private business and other private property, including private pension accounts and all that without honoring compensation agreements. Argentina has also been censured by the International Monetary Fund for deliberately publishing questionable economic data. Its policies have led to increasing inflation, capital flight, and a massive black market in U.S. dollars. According to a recent Financial Times dispatch, in the heart of downtown Buenos Aires, it is hard to walk more than 20 paces without being accosted by hawkers buying and selling dollars. 
To make things worse, Argentina recently suffered another sovereign debt default. While the government maintained its popularity during the so-called global commodity supercycle, President Kirchner's approval rating has fallen dramatically since her election in 2011, and her ruling coalition suffered big losses in the nation's October 2013 legislative elections. Over the past year, Argentina has experienced large-scale anti-government protests, lengthy power outages, serious labor unrest, and deadly riots. As the uh, Economist magazine recently noted, a combination of political torpor and economic fragility has once again raised questions about the precariousness of the country's position. Our speakers today will offer their thoughts and observations on the state of Argentina's democracy and economy. Is South America's second largest nation on the verge of another full-blown crisis? Will the situation get worse before it gets better? If so, how much worse? We'll consider these questions and many more. We feel honored by the outstanding specialists we are able to gather for this conference, whose bios appear in the print program. I'll be moderating the, um, the first panel, and let me introduce each of the speakers in this module. In the first panel, which I'm going to moderate, we have from from your right going towards the left, which I must advise you, that's not the order in which they secretly plotted to speak. So we'll begin from the right to the left. Okay, Nicolas uh, Ducote is uh, our, our speaker, the first, the last speaker. Um, Nicolas Ducote has been uh, a political leader. He has uh, a very important position in the governorship of, uh, of Buenos Aires. Sebastián Sayé is also from Argentina, and he's uh, an economist, a political scientist at the uh, University of San Diego in California. And Don Juan Carlos Hidalgo, also from Costa Rica, is works at the Cato Institute. He has uh, an ample file of uh, graduate degrees, but I don't want to bore you with that. And I think we will begin then with um, Mr. Hidalgo. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for your introduction. Um, I'm going to be speaking 
on, mostly on the economy of Argentina in the last decade. I'm going to be talking about Analy I'm going to analyze the one decade. That's the term that uh, President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has used to describe the mostly t over 10 years mm -hmm. since uh, her husband and her have been uh, ruling Argentina in 2003. I have a PowerPoint presentation. The one you want it right there? Come up soon. I wish I were I were the author of this uh, of this uh, phrase, but uh, it's been it's been on the news in, in Argentina lately. There have been several op-eds and, and columns using the term Argenzuela to describe uh, the road that uh, Argentina is taking uh, or has been taking in the last uh, ten years. Uh, because when we talk about uh, populist economies, uh, populist regimes in Latin America, we refer to Bolivia, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and, uh, and Venezuela. Uh, these countries constitute the ALBA countries, that, uh, this grouping that was created uh, by Hugo Chavez in order to challenge U.S. Uh, power in the region. Uh, however, uh, even though Argentina is not part of this grouping, it's not part of ALBA, I think it's the country that has followed Venezuela's policies more closely. If we look at uh, some sort of uh, some set of policies that uh, Argentina has been uh, implementing in the last uh, decade, you will see a significant increase in public spending, which includes, of course, uh, transfers and, and subsidies. We can see also expansionary monetary policy, nationalization and expropriations widespread use of economic controls, such, a, such as currency controls and price controls, and a rise in protectionist measures. These are all policies that uh, Venezuela has also implemented in, uh, in the last uh, decade. Of course, the, 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 the intensity on with which Argentina has implemented these policies doesn't follow uh, Venezuela, but uh, the, uh, the background is pretty much the same. If we look at economic growth, in Argentina since the year 2000, we can see that after the deep recession of 2001 and 2002, the economy rebounded and rebounded pretty strongly. It grew on average 7.7% a year between 2003 and 2011. And that led many people to believe that Argentina was experiencing quite a miracle and that uh, the unorthodox policies of, of the Kirchner couple were responsible for this uh, successful growing economy. But the strong growth of the Argentine economy was mostly due to two factors. One of them was a steep rise in public spending. Let's not forget that Argentina stopped paying uh, its, debt, its foreign debt in 2001 when it entered its, the major, the, mo the biggest default in, in history. So if you're not paying your debts, you have a lot of money. And Argentina's government uh, increased uh, public spending significantly during this decade. Of course, that has a very uh, stimulant effect in the short term. Eventually, you have to pay your bills, and that creates a lot of trouble that we are now witnessing. And also, the economy benefited from extraordinary good external conditions, namely the high price of soybeans that uh, provided also a windfall of resources to the government and to the, uh, the farming sector. 
the government tax um, the farmers pretty heavily. A survey by La Nación newspaper in 2008 found that the average Argentine farmer, farmer needed to work 240 days a year to pay all his taxes. In some cases, this figure went up to up to 300 days a year. So uh, the government was milking the soybean uh, farmers, and this led to a revolt in 2008 that culminated in a, a very significant defeat in Congress the, to the Kirchner rule. It was their first political defeat, but they have proved very resilient in keeping power, even though they, they have suffered uh, several defeats throughout their years in power. So, as I said, this, this, uh, this very uh, resilient growth, uh, grow, uh, high growth rates, led some people to praise the Argentine economy. None other than Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman, just like two years ago, was saying that Argentina was a remarkable success story, one that arguably holds lessons for the Eurozone. And this is two years ago. This is not 2008, you know. He was uh, praising Argentina. And I, I needed to put this in here because, you know, maybe Paul Krugman doesn't have much credibility anymore here in, in, the, in the U.S., but his articles are translated all over Latin America. Many people take him seriously. He's a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, and, and, and this shows the, 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 the fact that he was praising Argentina just two years ago when many of the problems that we're now witnessing were already apparent in Argentina shows that uh, his advice to Latin American countries and to all other countries around the world is not, should not be taken seriously. This is public spending in Argentina. As I said, public spending provided a strong stimulus to the economy during the one decade. As you can see, uh, public spending has increased by 22 percentage, percentage points of GDP since 2003, and it's now over 18 percentage points than it was at the level of 2001 when the government went into default because of insolvency. Uh, so this shows the magnitude of the problem that Argentina is facing right now. Subsidies and public spending constitute a major component of public spending. According to data from the INDEC, the Statistics Office, public employment went up by 35.5% since 2003. And subsidies have nearly quadrupled since 2006, and they reached, according to some estimates, almost 5% of GDP in 2013. Energy subsidies constitute the, the, the the bulk of this of this uh, spending, they account to for of they account to 64 percent of the spending that the government does in, in subsidies. So, if you're you're spending so much money, but you cannot um, you cannot tax your population to death like they tried, but they failed. So they started printing money. The government eventually ran out of money and started printing money. And given that foreign credit was not available. That's pretty much the main source of revenue for the Argentine government, printing money. So that's why in December 2007, when inflation was going up, the government decided to intervene in DEC. They decided to intervene the statistics office and began manipulating the inflation figure. You know, and, and the move seems ridiculous, but it wasn't harmless. It cost bondholders of the country's inflation-linked bonds at least 2.3 billion dollars a year because they were paying for uh, uh, they were being paid less money 
than the inflation, the real inflation rate, uh, rate granted. And it also overstated real GDP growth. After 2007, it is estimated that a third of that growth, the real GDP growth that we saw before, was just the product of, of the statistics being cooked. Early this year, the index supposedly made an effort to bring the numbers back to reality. But according to private estimates, if inflation still runs at a double the, ra a double the rate that what the index reports. It's now like 40% year on, year to year, the latest estimate, whereas the official rate says is below 20%. And you know, as in Venezuela, once you have inflation, the nature of, of this government is to impose more controls, not to bring back inflation, uh, uh, not to bring inflation back to, to, to earth, but in, instead imposing new controls on the economy. And then came the currency controls and the price controls, mostly, most of them informal, as, uh, <coughs> as Ambassador Darrenblum described. The government has prevented uh, 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 shops and, uh, and supermarkets to publicize their, their goods in the newspapers, you know, so people don't know what the price of the products is. And supposedly that's going to, that creates a lot of confusion. It seems ludicrous, but it creates a lot of confusion and a lot of, a lot of uh, uncertainty. The most recent effort uh, by the Argentine government is a law that was passed last week that will allow the government to go after businesses that are deemed to be raising prices unjustifiably or artificially or that enjoy abusive profits. Uh, in those cases, the bill authorizes the Secretary of Commerce to regulate and establish profit margins in each stage of production and commercialization, set price controls, and force companies to continue producing even though they are incurring in losses. You might, um, the bill also empowers the Secretary of Commerce to raid, find, and temporarily close businesses and also to confiscate merchandise. We were talking before in the green room about this bill, and, and my, my colleagues here say that uh, the government lacks the capacity to enforce this law, and probably that's true, but it still gives them the power to do so, you know, and the, and the discretionary power to to go after businesses is a very powerful tool, especially when a Kirchner is in power. Uh, the bill that I just described probably sounds very familiar to you because it's, it's basically a copycat of Venezuela's Just Price and Cost Act that was passed in July 2011. This law has greatly contributed to Venezuela's further decimation of the private sector and to widespread shortages of basic goods. The last time the Venezuelan Central Bank publishes a scarcity index in March uh, of this year, this index reached 29.4%, which means that over one out of four basic products is out of stock at any given time. So Argentina, if they actually go in trying to implement this law they just passed, which is pretty similar to Venezuela, let's not be surprised if we start seeing uh, shortages and scarcity all over the country. Now let's look at the uh, policy of nationalizations and expropriations. Since the years of Nestor Kirchner, the government has actively engaged in nationalizing or expropriating companies. Most of these companies were, most of these were companies that were privatized in the 1990s, and admittedly, some of, their, some of them were privatized under very dubious circumstances. So the government used those excuses to uh, renationalize these businesses. In some cases, those companies now constitute a heavy drain. These renationalized companies, companies constitute a heavy drain on public finances. 
For example, Aerolíneas Argentinas. Aerolíneas Argentinas, since it was nationalized in 2008, has averaged daily losses of almost $2 million a day. Uh, perhaps the most important of these, uh, of these uh, examples were the nationalization of the private funds in 2008 because it represented a transfer of $23.5 billion that were private savings of, of Argentine workers to public coffers. And it also represented a yearly additional revenue to the government of $4 billion a year. You know, people keep contributing to these funds, supposedly for their pensions, but the government just taking the money and spending it in current, current spending. Also, since the private pension funds own stock in a multiple of companies, the government began appointing members to their boards because now they belong to the government. So one of these companies was uh, Grupo Clarín, which owns Clarín, the, the Argentina's leading newspaper, a major critic of the government. And there is a, an actually a very disturbing uh, video of uh, Secretary Moreno, former Secretary Moreno, the, the former Secretary of Commerce of Argentina, storming into a board meeting of Grupo Clarín and calling them all fascists and human rights abusers. And he was claiming that he had a right to be in that board meeting because the government now owns the stock of the private pension funds and thus has a representation in, the, in this board. Another significant move came, came in April 2012 when the government expropriated the controlling stake of Yacimientos Petrolíferos Argentinos, the country's uh, largest oil company that was owned by Spain's Repsol. Uh, they finally reached an agreement, uh, even though Repsol was originally asking for $10 billion, they reached an agreement for $5 billion paid in bonds, but now that there is a there is this fight with bondholders that we don't know how that's going to end. So all these policies of all these moves to nationalize, expropriate, and so on spooked investors. And it's one of the reasons why Argentina is one of the countries in Latin America that proportionally receives less foreign direct investment. Who wants to invest in Latin America, in Argentina, if you, your company can be taken away anytime? So as you can see, there's a comparison between Argentina and Chile. And you can see, well, Chile's foreign direct investment as a percentage of GDP has a very healthy numbers. Argentina's is barely 2% or even less. Nationalizations and high inflation have also led to massive capital flights since 2007. It's estimated that Argentines have approximately $180 billion abroad, which is more than six times the reserves of the central bank. So you can see the, the flight began in 2007, pretty much, with the subprime crisis, and then it, it here documents, this graph documents all the major episodes where uh, that capital flight has uh, gone up. It went down significantly when the government imposed draconian uh, currency controls in the last couple of years. Still, the reserves of the central bank have declined by 45% since 2010, and particularly after April, when um, a new law authorized the central bank to transfer more money from the reserves to the central government. So again, the government tried to tax uh, farmers to debt. Then it went after the pension funds. Then it went after the reserves of the central bank. It's continuously running out of money, even though... Uh, it, has had, it has put their, uh, its hands on, on, all these, on all these resources. 
As a result, the government has severely restricted the access of individuals to dollars. Today, it's almost impossible for an average Argentine to access dollars at the official rate of $8.45 pesos. The black market rate today, today, September 23rd, was 15.15 pesos, which is 79% higher than the official rate, which is leading to a deepening of the shortage of greenbacks. People are desperately looking for dollars because the black market rate is going up. So you have these draconian, uh, even though they were supposedly lifted a year ago, you still have these draconian uh, currency controls. It's impossible for, for Argentines, you know, like to get dollars to travel and, and so on in, at the official rate. And that leads me to this quote from Friedrich Hayek. Not unlike, just like uh, Paul Krugman, he's also a Nobel Prize economics, but uh, I like him, unlike Krugman. And uh, F.A. Hayek on Road to Serdom in 1944, his most famous book, uh, gave this quote that I think is very appropriate to what's going on, not only in Argentina, but also in Venezuela. The extent of the control over all life that economic control comforts is nowhere better illustrated than in the field of foreign exchanges. Nothing will at first seems to affect private lives less than a state control of the dealings in foreign exchange. And most people will regard this introduction with complete indifference. Yet the experience of most continental countries has taught thoughtful people to regard this step as the decisive advance on the path to totalitarianism and the suppression of individual liberty. It is, in fact, the complete delivery of the individual to tyranny of the state, the final suppression of all means of escape, not merely for the rich, but for everybody. It's amazing when you travel to Argentina or Venezuela, how much time you spend when you're drinking with friends or having dinner with friends talking about money, talking about the value of money and how to get dollars. It's interesting. Instead of, you know, like hanging out and talking about football, talking about movies, talking about, you know, the things that you usually do with friends, I will say that in Venezuela or Argentina, 70% of the conversation, the chit-chat, dwells about where to get dollars and how much they cost. So... It is, uh, I think Hayek was right on, spot on, when he talked about the massive impact that currency controls have on, the, on people's lives and people's liberties. So let's uh, just sum up the supposed one decade of the Kirchner couple. Since 2009, Argentina has applied 337 measures that affect international trade. It's the country that has implemented most protectionist measures after Russia and Indian. And some of these uh, measures are, are incredible. You know, like in 2012, the Argentine government uh, banned importing books due to health concerns. They claim that the leather, the lead, the lead in the, in, the, in the ink of the book was dangerous to human health. And thus, they, they banned the importation of, 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 of books uh, into Argentina. Uh, the government also requires major importers, such as automakers, to match the price of their imports with that of goods that they must export. They demand that importers export something so they can bring back the dollars to the economy. As a result, Porsche, the car, make, the, the car company, is exporting Malbec wine, and Mitsubishi is, is now selling peanuts. They have to get the dollars back, otherwise they're, they're not uh, allowed to, to operate. Uh, some of these controls have to do with exports, too. In order to bring, back, uh, bring, bring down the price of beef, uh, the government introduced uh, tough con export controls. 
on big on beef exports. So that made that from being the world's third biggest exporter of beef in 2005, Argentina currently exports less beef than Paraguay and Uruguay. You know, and they're minnows when it comes to territory compared to Argentina. And in 2010, Argentina even had to import beef from Uruguay. So that illustrates the decimation of the productive sector that uh, the Kirchner couple has uh, inflicted on the Argentine economy. Argentina has the second highest inflation rate in the world. You know that Venezuela is the number one. Uh, as I said, it's estimated that Argentines hold $180 billion abroad. It's by far the country with the most cases, 30 of them, before the World Bank's International Center for Settlement of, of, uh, of Investment Disputes. Many of these people who have been expropriated or whose companies have been nationalized have taken Argenti Argentina to court in order to get some kind of uh, payment back for, for, their, for their assets, for their seats' assets. Uh, later today, we're going to talk about the, uh, the tech second sovereign default in 13 years. Uh, there was recently um, a report by the World Bank that claims that Argentina, uh, Argentina's poverty risk quadrupling if there is an external shock to the economy. And, and if that were to happen, the poverty rates will even, will even go up, will go up to the level that they were in 2001 when Argentina experienced that serious uh, economic crisis. And finally, uh, Argentina, according to Transparency International, is the third most corrupt country in Latin America after Venezuela and Paraguay. Unfortunately, there seems to, uh, the, for example, some, some cases of corruption is, uh, are, are astonishing. You know that the Kirchner's couple official fortune, fortune has gone up 900% since they came to power. And this is according to their own official reports. So we don't know how much actually they... They have amassed during the years in power. Amado Bodu, Bodu the, the vice president, has been indicted or is being investigated in over a half a dozen cases, including counterfeiting money. Unfortunately, some of the most controversial decisions of the one decade, such as the nationalization of the pension funds and the nationalization of YPN and the standoff against the holdout bondholders, have been supported by the opposition and public opinion. When the private pension funds were nationalized, they received almost unanimous support in Congress. So this is not just a problem of the Kirchner's. This is a problem of the whole country. If you look at opinion polls, the popularity of the president has gone up since she started fighting the so-called vulture funds. The nationalization of YPS was greeted with fireworks in Congress. So. It looks that Argentina is a country that seems to take pride in breaking rules. As a cab driver told me once in Buenos Aires, and I'm going to G-rate this comment because probably it's not appropriate for this audience, but he said that the problem with Argentina is that the opposition is brain dead while the government is reckless. And I think that's a problem with uh, the political class of Argentina. We cannot just finger point the Kirchner's. The Kirchner's are just a representation of a very serious, deep trouble that the country is in. Thank you very much. Thank you, Juan Carlos, for your very good presentation. Now we have 
the Professor Sebastian Sayet, who I'm sure has prepared his statement very carefully. Thank you, Ambassador Darren Bloom. It's always a pleasure to come and talk at the Hudson Institute. I wanted to thank you again for, for the invitation. And I don't have as many slides, um, so I might not even talk for, for that long. Speakers always promise that, and then we, we go over, <laughs> so I'm keeping my stopwatch here. So the, the, the question that was posed to us, at least I think to attract your and our attention, is can Argentina survive Christine? And I, I, I would answer that very in a very straightforward way. The answer is, is yes. I think the country has survived um, many other traumatic um, things. If you look at the uh, past decades, or even you can go more than a hundred years, or even since its independence, um, there's there's a fair share of of traumatic events. In fact, for those of us who make a living as analysts of this country, it's it's always good for our careers because it never ceases. The country never ceases to, you know, produce a fair share of uh, <laughs> interesting, to say the least, events to. To examine. So this is a familiar, although sometimes it's, it's sad if you care about the well-being of uh, Argentines, uh, a somewhat familiar picture, but just to illustrate, you know, why my answer is yes, it can survive, but the emphasis would be in surviving rather than thriving. And, and this is just, you can see on the horizontal axis, we have time, and I just started this in 1945, but we could have gone more far back in time. And on the vertical axis, you just have income per capita, you know, the usual standard, you know, comparable measures, you know, purchasing power parity. And I'm only comparing the country to its closest geographical or some of its closer geographical neighbors. If we put this in the same scale with developed countries, then the gaps are going to be much higher. But the general trend, or what I would like to illustrate, is if you look at the blue line, that's Argentina in the 1940s, um, there's a huge gap with especially Brazil and Chile. It's closer with Uruguay. And, you know, for, for a while, I mean, income in Argentina is still higher than that of its neighbors. But you know, as you move into especially the 70s and the 80s, uh, the other countries are catching up. And you can see why they're catching up, because Argentina is slowing down and because the other countries are running a little bit faster, which is expected if you take into account initial conditions. We know that, but, you know, in the short run uh, dynamics, we can see what are the most dramatic instances, the dotted line there shows the 2001 crisis. As you can see, the contraction of the economy was quite significant, both for Argentina and Uruguay. And, you know, the other countries were not affected. And, of course, the country that we always point out as the, you know, Juan Carlos used the same comparison, Chile, you know, kept on growing. So you can see how, you know, if you were looking at these countries in the 1940s and you were trying to predict you know, the future, you would have said, well, you know, Argentina is in a position to keep that lead, and, and that's, that's not the case, right? So 
So we've seen our fair share, and you know, we could go into the details of the peaks and valleys, and and this is also you know what people in the you know old days used to attribute or talk about the stop and go cycles, right? The, the need of foreign currency, the country's exporting foodstuff. So then at some point, you know, the balance between domestic consumption and generating foreign currency, you know, would be politically untenable. And then, but since the 2000s, the big, big source of foreign uh, currency has been, uh, you know, the export of soybeans. You know, people in Argentina are not so keen on eating soybeans or soybean products. So it, in a way, it, it solved that whole problem of exporting, you know, the more coveted items such as beef and wheat. And, and so it seemed like a, you know, really good source of foreign uh, uh, exchange. And this is just a, you know, just to, you know, thought-provoking, if you want, graph. It shows the change in the price of soybeans uh, traded in, in Chicago in tons. That's the blue line. That's the vertical line here on this side. And on the other side, what we could call roughly capital flight, although these are official statistics. So these are what are called, you know, uh, um, external assets. <laughs> and as you can see, there's a relationship there. And of course, you know, there has to be some, you know, some other factor, right? I mean, there's, there, you know, it's, it's, it's a spurious correlation, as we like to say, because there's some omitted factor, right? There's, you know, you, you, you can't attribute the formation of foreign assets to how the price of soybeans in, in <coughs> evolved in, in, in Chicago. But I think the omitted variable there is confiscation and exchange rate risk. So mostly what this graph, at least in my interpretation, shows is that there was a big opportunity, especially starting in you know, the year maybe 2003, 2004, that all these now influx of foreign exchange could really you know, generate a domestic capital market or it could be you know, turned into productive investments. Instead of that, these were you know, external assets, which probably at some time during that time were not as profitable as, you know, maybe starting a business. I mean, you know, take this money, you know, you would buy dollars, you know, you put them under the mattress, they would not appreciate. I mean, it was probably, you know, from a really economic point of view, you know, and that's something that, you know, the President Kirchner herself says, well, you know, you, you guys should, you know, be, you know, staying in pesos or putting your money in, in certificates of deposit in pesos and, and still would not happen, right? So, you know, I, I think this shows a little bit of this, you know, history of confiscation risk, not necessarily confiscation risk, contemporary confiscation risk, but this mentality that, you know, as you get foreign currency, you might be doing or making uh, decisions based on this, considerations rather than, you know, investing in more productive activities. It's like sort of like a defensive sort of uh, behavior. And as you can see, the series ends in at the end of, of, of 2011. That's when the government imposed severe um, restrictions on, on foreign currency purchases. But as Juan Carlos pointed out, 
Uh, you know, because you might say, well, but why then, you know, governments don't work on trying to mitigate those concerns about confiscation risk. They, they, they might try, but also there are some measures of, you know, uh, there, there, some of these measures are not necessarily unpopular, and it's obvious why. I mean, assets are not distributed equally in society, so if you are making decisions that have redistributive consequences, there are winners and there are losers, and sometimes, you know, if you increase public spending, you might be popular, especially among those who benefit from public spending. So this is public sentiment as measured by something, a poll that it's not supposed to measure uh, necessarily presidential popularity, although it does. It is the Indice de Confianza en el Gobierno, which is meant to you know, be a little bit more sophisticated, but uh, it kind of like tracks public mood or public sentiment. So the first dotted line, I should have labeled them, that corresponds to the midterm elections in 2009. The government lo lost those elections, and that's kind of like one of the lows of uh, uh, the government in terms of popularity. And then that big peak up there, the second dotted line going up, that's the survey that was taken right after uh, Nestor Kitchener's death. So as you can see, this is really not necessarily tracking, you know, something as, you know, conceptually, you know, much more complicated as trust in government, but rather this public sentiment. Because, you know, from one month to the other, the increase is enormous. And it's not that the government became, became much more trustworthy, but the public became much more supportive of, uh, in this case, Christina Kirchner after her husband died. So as you can see, that's a big peak. Then the third dotted line, that's, those correspond to the elections right, that were held in October of 2011. Christina Kirchner wins won easily those elections with 53% um, of the vote. As you can see, she's riding really, really high in popularity. And then her popularity starts to slip <laughs> and starts going right. down. But then there's a little peak there. And that little <coughs> peak, which is that other dotted line, that's the confiscation of the national oil company, EPF. So this is, this is a popular measure. At least, you know, it was not, you know... Uh, discounted by, um, you know, the representative Argentinian as something for which the government should be punished. Okay, so there's a political logic. I mean, I, I, you know, there's, it might be argued there's a lot of decisions that are born out of inexperience or some might seem bizarre or some might be too ideological, but not, but there's, a, there's, there's some political logic here that, you know, needs to be, uh, disentangle, at least if we want to make a, you know, thoughtful analysis. So it paid off. I mean, that, you know, but it's, it was, you know, somewhat short-lived, right? It was this sort of like euphoria. So assets are now distributed evenly. So those who might not necessarily care or are directly affected by these macroeconomic decisions, such as, you know, repaying your sovereign debts, you know, might not care about that and support the government. And even those who might care, there are some other things that come into play, things that are have been used, I think, very cleverly by the government, like nationalistic sentiments, right? This idea that you nationalize the old company and it's not just an economic decision. And then that last uptick up there uh, corresponds to 
July of 2014. So that's July and August. So this is right after the government uh, didn't miss payment to the bondholders. It's a little more complicated the situation. I think the other panelists will probably do a better job than one that I can, can do in explaining what's going on. Uh, but basically, there's a <coughs> conflict between, or, you know, when Judge Thomas Grisa's decision uh, became uh, firm, or at least, you know, it could not be appealed again, uh, the government basically had to either find a way to pay the some of the holdouts uh, to move forward and keep on making payments, or else. And you know, then the government made an interesting move. They just said, "Well, here's the money," and they just sent the money to the Bank of New York. And they said, "Well, you know, here's the money. We've, we've already paid." But the Bank of New York says, "But the judge <laughs> tells me that I cannot give this money to these bondholders." So now we're in this. But in the middle of that, you know, the the, the rhetoric changed, and the government, you know, started to, you know, did not. Uh, couch this as a very technical discussion between, you know, the holdouts and, you know, it started doing that, trying to go into the details of what the party parasu clause means and how it was interpreted by Judge Thomas Grisa, but then it soon became a much more appealing, at least from their point of view, of, you know, getting public support and simplistic slogan of, Patria or buitres, right? you know, the, the, <laughs> the you know, uh, uh, homeland or the vultures. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, we would all be considered, you know, uh, vultures just by having this discussion and saying the word default. Don't say default. Um, so it paid off. Not too much, but it does. So following a little bit what Juan Carlos said, uh, next year – we have presidential elections. And I think this has also shaped a little bit the behavior of both the government, the opposition, and also bondholders. I mean, some bondholders are still optimistic that some agreement will be reached in January, that even if that doesn't happen, it's good to keep those bonds because they're going to increase their price once there's a new government. So all this is speculation, and it's all based on these forward-looking of what's going to happen uh, next year. As you can see, we have, you know, a host of presidential candidates, even though, you know, it, it, it looks like a very messy situation. You would think that nobody would want to step in and try to fix all these problems. We have all these contenders who really want to come in and, 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 and do something. about. So we have Daniel Scioli, you know, the, you know Mauricio Macri and, and Sergio Massa. These are, you know, probably the you know, they are the leading candidates as of now. And then, you know, a, a few candidates on a, on a, on a, on a sort of a coalition of parties called UNEN uh, trying to get, you know, one of them will probably try to seek the nomination. And so we we'll, may have a four-candidate race. Uh, and so there's this idea that they're going to do something about the issue, that they're going to solve it. Um, they're going to handle it differently. So there's that expectation. Now, what is this expectation based? I mean, is it just optimism? Is it based on some reality? So what I did, um, many of these candidates, or some of them have surrogates because they are sitting in office. Daniel Scioli is the governor of Buenos Aires. Mauricio Macri is the 
it's not governor. It's mayor, mayor of the city of Buenos Aires. Uh, Sergio Massa is now sitting in Congress. Some of them sit in Congress. And so we have a record of what they've done. So pretty much like what, you know, it's, 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 it's the norm to do in the, in the United States. We can look at their voting records and we can look at their revealed behavior and see how they've been voting. Okay? So those, you know, dots represent their location in a space that if it takes negative values, that's just, you know, arbitrary. I'm not trying to be negative. <laughs> means closer to the government. And positive values means farther away from the government. That's probably the dynamic that takes place mostly in the uh, Chamber of Deputies, you know, in the, in, in the Argentine Congress. You know, you vote, you know, it's government and opposition rather than, you know, ideological, mm -hmm. although there's obviously some correlation with. As you can see, Elisa Carrió is probably further away from the government. Uh, Gabriela Michetti. I would take her as a surrogate for Macri. It's also farther away. Fernando Solanas from the left and from this group. Unen is closer. And then as you get closer to the government, you have the leader of the, the majority leader, Juliana Di Tullio. But there you have also Sergio Massa, right, who's you know, publicly trying to distance himself from the government. He was part of it. Then he ran against it. And it's not that clear. And I should have said that the dots are the location. And then these... Horizontal bands are, we have some uncertainty because we don't have a lot of data. So we want to create these confidence intervals. So, you know, if they overlap, that means that they're not that different. Okay, so even though Mas is a little bit different, he's not that different. And then, you know, Plani is nothing special, but, you know, he's been identified as being yeah. aligned with Scioli. So as you can see, they're not that much different, though, you know, you could see, well, those guys there on the top are completely different from the government. They are, this is based on data that are a little bit older, they're from 2010, but you can think of, you know, ideologies as left, right, more intervention, less intervention, more redistribution, and things that don't change, you know, it's, it's something more glacier. And now things become a little more complicated. So people who are not familiar with Argentina, that's when they scratch their heads and they're like, <laughs> wait a minute. So who are the parents? Who are not the parents? Who are the opposition? Who's on the left? Who's on the right? As you can see, you could think of a left-right ordering where the left would be here, the Socialist Party, PS. Macri there on the right. And then some people in between. And then you have the Peronists and the non-Peronists. So what you have is that, you know, some of these guys that are up there and they are in the opposition. They're trying to put together a coalition, but they're very different. Right? They're trying to put together these guys <laughs> who are called PS, with some of the guys there, like Cobos or Carrió or Sanz, okay? So, you know, the bottom line is that I think we're going into a scenario where there's going to be a lot of fragmentation. Uh, nobody's going to win with a big majority. We have a very peculiar runoff system in Argentina where um, if uh, one of the candidates gets... Uh, a 10-point lead and more than 40% of the vote, there's no runoff. I don't think we're even going to be there. I think there's going to be a runoff. And some of these guys might be there in the second round. But that means that even if they are in the second round, they're going to win on borrowed votes. And I don't think we're going to go into a scenario where there's going to be a decisive winner with a clear mandate that's going to decide what to do with public policy, in this case with uh, sovereign debt. But... 
relying on some of my previous research, which is now more academic research, which you might think, well, now we're getting into science fiction territory here. But this is a statistical study that I did a few years ago, uh, looking at whether multi-party coalitions uh, tend to honor more or less the government uh, debts. Uh, and so this is prior to restructuring debts rather than the situation where the country is now. And what I found is that multi-party coalitions uh, tend to, you know, diminish the probability of rescaling <coughs> debts. And the logic is very simple because assets are distributed unevenly and usually it's more popular to cater to those, to the have-nots than to the haves. When you have coalition governments, you might have some veto player in the coalition. You might need to cater to some groups who do have a stake in debt repayment. So, you know, coalition governments uh, tend to take creditors' interest into account much more than these, you know, popular majorities of one party with 50-something percent of the vote and a mandate and all these temptations to behave in a populistic manner. So to end in an optimistic uh, note, given that we're going into a fragmented scenario, both in terms of, you know, ideological fragmentation and, uh, you know, uh, electoral support for some of these guys, I think, you know, we <coughs> might be optimistic about the resolution of the um, sovereign debt situation, uh, you know, next year. Thank you, Sebastian. That was a very good presentation, very interesting. And now we have the um, presentation of Nicolas Ducote, also from Argentina, which I'm sure is going to be very interesting. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the Hudson Institute for hosting us today and uh, to Ambassador Darren for the invitation, and especially to you, because if you weren't here, I'm sure we would have a very engaging conversation, but it wouldn't be as rich and as interesting as it will be when you get into your questions. Uh, the title of my presentation, if I were to quote Obama's 2008 campaign, would be The Audacity of Hope. Um, <laughs> or I'll take a more original version, it's The Resilience of the Argentine Promise. So my presentation will give you, I'll, I'll just touch on three things. First, very briefly on a review of the recent past where I can agree with much of Juan Carlos's data about what, what the economics would look like. I can disagree with his last conclusion that, uh, that we're condemned to, to a reckless leadership. I really think that there, there are seeds uh, for hope in, in the changes that might be coming uh, after 2015. And I can agree with much of Sebastian's uh, response to the main question we're asked today. Can Argentina survive Cristina? Yes, I have an, uh, a very strong uh, conviction that that is uh, not only likely but also a uh, uh, reason for optimism. And uh, so I'll go into a few of the things I want to share with you regarding Argentina's recent past, where we are today, and what lies ahead. Um, 2003, clearly divided in two periods of the Kirchnerist administration, Néstor Kirchner's period until 2007, and Cristina Kirchner's period until 2015. Kirchner arrives to office with a very strong mandate or opportunity to consolidate power and restore the authority of the presidency. We'd been through five presidents in a couple of weeks between the 2001 and 2002 crisis. Um, there's a strong mandate of the citizenry to re-engage re and, and restore growth and promote growth. Um, again, as my both previous uh, speakers were saying, the 
opportunities that came from international terms of trade and Argentina's commodities, as well as the lack of uh, um, keeping up to its international commitments, allowed for a local uh, grown stimulus to the economy. Kirchner arrived with a very loose coalition that brought together provincial governors of the Peronist, part of the urban poor, and a center-left coalition that they catered to with a strong human rights uh, approach to much of their policies. And he arrived in a very weak situation of uh, governance, with only 22.5% of the vote and of Congress. So there was a sentiment that, hey, if there's much opposition to this government, uh, it might fall apart in the early days. So he got more of a... Uh, blank check to get started. And the scenario for Argentina after devaluation was very positive in 2003 through 2007. Some achievements of those times, I don't want this to be just purely negative because I have, being an, an, a, a leader in the opposition, I do have many things I want to change, but I have to acknowledge that some of the things were positive. The Supreme Court's renewal brought a higher degree of independence in terms of the judicial system. Presidential authority was reconstituted when the president decided something. Part of the state could act upon that decision. They avoided the use of force uh, to settle, I would say, social unrest. This, again, uh, might be good or bad in terms of rule of law. It definitely allowed for the government to get through its early, weaker stages. They emphasized a very strong human rights uh, policy, especially looking at a human rights policy aimed at the past, not at the present nor the future. Um, but it worked out well in terms of putting back on the discussion table certain values that Argentina has not been uh, very um, careful to take care of over the past 30, 40 years. They did a reasonable uh, economic performance in terms of the fiscal policy in the early years and the trade balance in the early years. State and public investment was reasonably well uh, organized in the early stages, especially towards education and social policies. They did increase the investment in education more than any other administration. And then on a more institutional side, the, they promoted a uh, new legislation for communication services. It is true that one of the articles was specifically aimed at destroying the power of the Grupo Clarín, but the rest of the legislation is over 150, 160 articles, were made to uh, improve competition and to have a framework which is more like that of the OECD countries. Political reform gave us primaries. It also allowed for a better system of um, control of some of the stages of the political process. We advanced strongly with a universal child allowance, which again was meant to address some of the poorest in need in the early age stages, and social security coverage increased a lot. So this is, I would say, if I, had, if I were forced to highlight some of the things that the government and the administration did, which were positive and hopefully will, will uh, be sustained through time, these are some of the achievements. The shortcomings are long. I've just listed uh, a few here, and I'm, I'm skipping those that have to do with the debt default because we'll deal with some of those in the, in the conversation. But there were no long-term or structural policies in areas like energy, transport, housing. Uh, public investment was used almost exclusively to increase the discretionary power of the presidency over the governors and the federal uh, arrangement of our, of our political uh, situation. Um, there was very little done to increase the structural competitiveness of Argentina and the institutional quality. Inflation, as of 2007, has been a huge uh, shortcoming and a huge problem. We've got a huge, uh, significant labor informality and lack of productivity in our productive sector. Uh, the presidency has used the bully pulpit to attack the media, to attack specific companies, people, NGOs. And this, again, has created a, a sense of threat to expressing public opinion and acting uh, with the freedom that we all expect to have. 
Freedom of information has uh, really been put back. We had some legislation which lost its status. Um, we had some regulations that are every time more complicated to be able to put in force. And many of the professional public institutions, the Statistics Institute, the controllers, agencies, uh, the regulatory agencies, have all been politicized and put in the hands of people who are more known for their political loyalty to the presidency than for their professional abilities. And lastly, to, in, in this quick mention, the confrontation and the obstruction of justice to the judicial branch. Um, one of the questions we're asked today is, how can Argentina, you know, uh, withstand it? So it's this uh, decision to not comply with the rule of law or uh, with a judicial decision here in the U.S. Much the same happens in Argentina. I mean, the Supreme Court took a decision of um, putting back in office a prosecutor of the province where the district, uh, where the Kirchners came from, over seven years ago, and the government has not obeyed this. So what do you do when the government does not obey a judicial decision? And I realize this is a very complicated situation for the judges, because if you come out with a pronouncement and the political system does not obey, you lose some kinds of legitimacy. Uh, and if you don't manage the resources to have that enforced, you have to uh, think twice about what you, what you for try to force the government to do. The same thing happened with pensions. The Supreme Court has um, given pensioners more rights than what the administration effectively pays, and that still hasn't uh, had, a, had a consequence. Some of these figures I'll go quickly through because they're the same ones that Juan Carlos moved. So we have uh, GDP growth has really changed between the first part of the Peter administration and the second uh, part of Cristina's uh, mandate. Inflation has just been increasing and increasing, and if we look at if that graph extended to 2014, we'll probably be near 40%. Fiscal balance and current account surpluses are probably by now either at zero or even lower. Um, the Kishner's way of managing the economy was what we call the one-eyed Keynesianism. Uh, of the two things of stimulating growth and stifling inflation, they were only able to stimulate growth. If you look at the very micro level, they increased intervention with gross malpractices in areas like dairy products, beef, um, and several others. The, the list gets longer. And they uh, promoted a very stronger state of the role as a distributor and uh, participant in the economy, and many times stifling um, private sector initiative. So if you look at public expenditure, the latter uh, fourth of the graph, uh, if I can aim at that, let's see there, um, is the last, this part of the 2003-2013. If we look at the tax pressure, same thing. We can also find that increase in taxes Going up there, if we look at the comparison with OCDE countries or a selection of Latin American countries, Argentina is that outlier, while the rest have remained relatively stable. If you're a foreign investor, Argentina has given you this surprise over the past 10 years. And when we look at what happened between the state and the market distribution of, you know, who runs what, uh, definitely in the 90, by the early 1990s, Argentina's economy was still very significantly state-run including most oil, energy, telecommunications, and utilities, with high inefficiency and fiscal deficits. Menem's period in those 10 years led to huge privatization efforts, and much of these were reverted and are being reverted during the Kirchner administration. So if you look at oil and gas, as Juan Carlos was saying with IPF, oops, sorry, um, they renationalized the main uh, oil uh, firm in the country, they renationalized water utilities, airlines, postal services, pension funds, and They've hyper-regulated electricity, natural gas distribution, transport, and telecommunications to an extent where the government regulatory agencies 
are the ones that decide what profits or lack of profits are possible for the private sector involved in those service provisions. They, uh, had a, they made a huge effort to restore authority, but definitely authority around the presidency, not around the political system. That has uh, led to a concentration of power in the federal government vis-a-vis -vis the provinces, and now we'll see uh, some of the, uh, an image that reflects that. They increasingly intervened in business and the private sector. They've uh, increasingly intervened in some of the public institutions, as we were saying, statistics and other regulatory agencies. They've tried to get uh, new taxes or capture tax rent from as many sources as possible. And they've uh, put much more power, tilted the balance towards the executive and away from Congress. This uh, graph explains uh, part of the federal power. It's how much of a state's resources come from the national government. And obviously the gray part is how much of each state in Argentina depends on the federal administration. So when we have numbers of about over 50% to 69%, those governors have very limited possibilities to be independent or to explore uh, more alternative voices to what the official administration's position is. And this has a direct correlation with Congress because most senators and congressmen come from those districts and are closely related to their governors. And if their governors are really fiscally um, held hostages to the national administration, the same thing happens to many members of Congress. Institutionally, we've seen, as, uh, as was mentioned earlier, inflation, intervention in Statistics Institute. Um, when private indexes come up uh, with think tanks or organizations voicing an opinion on what the real price index is, we've seen fines, we've seen uh, court prosecutions, and uh, a significant government attempt to keep those voices quiet. When we look at the central bank's independence, we went from a more international accepted practice under the administrations of Alfonso Pratguey, somewhat less in Martin Redrados, and now with Marcelo Marco de Pont, we've definitely lost the idea of preserving the value of money, the same with the current administrator of central bank, Juan Carlos Fabrega, and that has a direct correlation with inflation. So we've moved to other mixed aims of supporting the economy or, or stimulating growth, which not necessarily defend the value of Argentine currency. When we look at judicial reform, the Kirchner administration has um, proposed some of the most daring initiatives here. Many of them, fortunately, did not make it to their full stage uh, development, but they would have implied a much a stronger hand from the executive in the uh, judicial nomination and confirmation process, a limitation to the amount of measures that an individual or a company can do to defend its, uh, itself from the state. And it's basically increased the power of the administration against, or, or if I were to use it, against ordinary people and businesses. Um, many of these things are under judicial review. The, but when you look at who does the judicial review, you should see how many judges there are in Argentina. Argentina has about 900 judges in its federal and local systems. Over half of them were appointed in the last decade. So when you think of the appointments in the judicial system for the next 30 or 40 years, uh, the Kirchner administration has done a very smart, in terms of political savviness, uh, move, which is, since they said, we don't want any judges that were uh, exercising uh, their office in the dictatorship. So this meant that they've appointed all people in their early 40s and 50s, usually with a biased view towards their own points of view. And this means that we will have these judges in office for the next 30 or 40 years, since many of them are young. Um, so they, they have a significant, I won't say control, but influence over the judicial branch. So definitely Argentina has problems. Inflation is a problem. The situation with our lack of, or our public expenditure or our lack of uh, trade balance and fiscal balance. 
Um, if we look at what happened to Argentine firms compared to Brazil, Chile, Colombia, or Mexico, or Peru's firms, Argentine's capitalization of firms is not only much lower but going down. Uh, people trust much less our stock market and the value of our, of our companies. And uh, I want to quote here Paul Samuelson because it's uh, an alternative uh, to what we heard of Hayek and uh, Krugman earlier today. Uh, but he's, he says in one of his analyses of the world at the century's end, suppose someone in 1945 had asked him, what part of the world do you expect to experience the most dramatic takeoff in the next three decades? And he says, probably I would have given the answer something like Argentina is a wave of the future. It has a temperate climate, a density of population that provides a favorable natural resource, endowment, um, it's a historical accident that its population is mostly homogeneous European. And Argentina is in 1945 at the intermediate stage of development where rapid growth is most expected. And he says, how wrong have I been? You know, the sickness, should Peter would claim, is political and uh, sociological rather than economic. It has to do with a breakdown of our consensus. And so I want to explore a little bit of the challenge of trying to build those consensus. First, Argentina is a very heterogeneously uh, poor country in many senses, with some districts or provinces with about 40% of the population in poverty and others with barely 3 or 4%. So it's difficult to think of Argentina as a single country in that sense. Basic infrastructure is lacking in many countries, uh, sewers, uh, rain uh, or uh, safe water, uh, pavements, public lightning. Uh, these things over the past 10 years have not changed significantly. We still have one of the highest costs in the region, of logistics to be able to export or produce. And um, we have this situation that uh, Sebastian was mentioning before, which is what is the possibility of building consensus across party lines? And today you have, uh, if we look at the 2013 elections, Peronism accounting for about 50% of popular support between the government's coalition of parties and the and Sergio Massa's uh, Renew, uh, Renovador, Frente Renovador. And you have the non-Paris accounting for 40, 45%, but basically a very fragmented uh, political system with few examples of historic uh, consensus building with a presidential system that is very strongly presidential and does not provide for systems of checks and balances as much as others, and with huge uh, regional di uh, diversity. This is if you look at the map of Argentina. The blue states are those that are uh, Kirchnerists and allies. The orange are dissident Peronists. And uh, or Peronist in this different uh, uh, that could be with a uh, official administration or not. The green is more of the center left uh, structure, and the little yellow spot there is the city of Buenos Aires. But basically, you have a very diverse um, political, I would say, scenario, uh, which will even get more complicated towards 2015. Now, there is an opportunity in this low debt. Part of what we are questioning today has to do with the Argentina's debt default, but it's restructuring, and, and again, I cannot say out of uh, virtue, uh, but out of necessity at the point maybe, in 2002, left it with a GDP to debt ratio that at least doesn't make it condemned to be paying debts for the rest of its history. The terms of trade seem still very favorable for Argentina. If we look towards the future, soybeans, uh, natural resources, some of these things are still positive with their yearly fluctuations. There are some interesting shale, gas, and oil reserves. Um, in shale gas, allegedly, we are the second biggest kind of reserves, and in oil, fourth or fifth. So there's some significant opportunities there. Um, and as Sebastian was showing, if you look at the consumer confidence index or the government confidence index, all these things are changing, which usually comes associated with a shift in people's electoral uh, choices. So there is a, a, some sense of hope. 
for what lies ahead. I am uh, quite optimistic because uh, what's happening in Argentina at the political level is uh, a scenario of four to five candidates out there. None of them will be able to reach uh, the, probably the first round with sufficient votes, but uh, it will be a contested election where about 70% of the vote will be something different than the current administration. So those options, a little bit to the center or center-left or even some to the center, apparently center-right, will be trying to express a change in uh, our, our government and its policies. And uh, I have no doubt that, that even uh, if you look at two of the, of the leading three contesting candidates, will uh, imply shifts in foreign policy, uh, reorganization of many of the economic issues, particularly de dealing with statistics, debt renegotiation, uh, inflation, freeing up the economy in areas like uh, farm sector, reducing regulation, and putting private sector back in a place of uh, more reliability and what the rules of the games are. And I'm fairly optimistic that the energies that are stored and, and, and some kind repressed in Argentine's uh, private sector leadership and civil society are waiting for a door to open and to be able to put those resources to, to the service of progress in the years ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was very enlightening. We have uh, we have uh, a short space for a few questions. Uh, anybody ha anybody would like to ask a question or has a comment concerning the uh, our speakers? Well, in that case, Here's one. oh. Take up the microphone. There you go, behind you. Thank you. Uh, from the observations from the three speakers, uh, all of them uh, very clear, uh, there is only one observation that I want to make. Having come to age in the decade 45 to 55, the period that is being described uh, now uh, seems rather similar. And the hopes that we as young people had in uh, 55 are the same hopes that uh, Mr. Ducote has today. Uh, one thing that has not been talked about, uh, the, the economic and political situation have been explained, but the uh, the problem, the sociological problem and the problem of the people is that there has not been much change, at least not expressed by the people that have talked uh, about, about the, the willingness of the people to be different. Uh, at the moment uh, that uh, the governing uh, power at the present time uh, does all those things uh, that are against the, the meaning of the rule of law. And this is accepted. And uh, of course, if you talk with people in Argentina, as uh, we do continuously, and uh, the, the idea that the government is correct and the world is incorrect in their evaluation of the buitres and the hawks going around the 
trying to damage the country. There is never a conscience of the responsibility of the Argentinians for their own destiny. And uh, uh, I would like some comments about how to change the sociological and the psychological appreciation. Thank you, Dr. Hirschman, for your... So I can agree one of the, I think one of the most significant um, arguments in favor of your, uh, of your analysis is that Argentine, Argentines haven't changed their relationship to the law very much. If we look at how many people on a daily basis decide to obey or disobey, do they park on double lanes, do they actually you know, try to bribe a public officer, do they try? So this hasn't uh, changed in a very dramatic way, and, and this lies, I think, in part of our disdain for the rule of law or uh, the shortcuts that we take many times. Having said that, I do think that, and I've seen, as you might have as well, that Argentines, when subjected or when put into a different system, operate differently. Most of them, when they have to drive here in D.C., keep to speed limits, or they wouldn't attempt to bribe a public officer, or they just behave differently. And this happens when they go to Chile, when they go to Uruguay. So I think there is a, something that needs to uh, be nourished at the, ver at the very top. I think what happens to most Argentines is that when they see that their vice president, that their president or whatever, disobeys uh, the rule of law or does things as they will, then they feel, well, I have a right uh, as well. So I think we need, we definitely need, and, and I, I know from first hand that several of the candidates that are competing in office would hold us to higher standards in terms of leadership and what we can and expect. If one of your public uh, ministers is, you know, indicted for something, well, you should let go of him, you know, and not hold on. I think leadership matters. I think that leadership can change cultural values slowly and through time. I think it does make a difference as it did in Turkey with, again, their own leadership decided to go one way and uh, back 70 years ago. I think that we can see those changes, but I think your point aims directly at the heart of one of Argentina's biggest challenge, which is a cultural trait of how much we uh, accept uh, the agreements that we come to, or do we try to shortcut and get our own private benefits for that? One more question that unfortunately will be will have to be the last question <laughs> of this segment. Well, hello. I will add a comment, being a person from the media, that uh, to make a comment for the people that don't know, when you are seeing a soccer match in Argentina, all those soccer players and all the institutions are public employees. The government pays all the soccer in Argentina and they use it for advertising purposes. When you are seeing a soccer march in Argentina, you are seeing a lot of advertising for the government. If you also see how they distribute the money of the advertising to all the media, you will see that 95% is managing all the uh, government-affiliated uh, radios and TV channels and newspapers. And also they bought many using uh, friends that are doing with them other kind of business, and they appear in the media buying radios, newspapers, using money, a lot of money, buying a lot of tools for communication, and it's unbelievable, really, all the pressure and all the message continuously that all the Argentinians are receiving from the government in something that we call the relato in Spanish. It's like a, like a novel that the government tries to, to tell us. If you see all these figures here, and I was tweeting some of them, they were joking, we should put some of this data when Cristina is speaking and all the things like that, because it's absolutely contrary what the government is saying, and they are using a in impressive media system 
and the, and and they're managing the conscience of the people in this way. Yeah, a, a friend of mine actually coined the term estafa, uh, which is a scam to 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 refer to the joining of forces of the Estado, the government, and the AFA, la AFA, la Asociación de Fútbol Argentino, estafa. Uh, but yeah, if you watch a football game in, in Argentina, in halftime is full of uh, government propaganda. is amazing. And, uh, you know, they have the best propagandists in, in Latin America. Uh, I was at, uh, probably you watched the commercial when uh, they had these gold medalists uh, training in Malvinas, in the Falklands. You know, at the end, he kisses the soil. You know, he say, we train Argentinian soil to go to compete to London. I mean, they're amazing. You have to give them credit for that. So it's not surprised that the numbers of the government go up every time there is a confrontation because they have an oppressive propaganda machine behind them. I can agree with that. I think the the way they use uh, public um, support of media for their own interest and uh, and position is absolutely biased, skewed, and uh, perverse. Having said that, I think it's like if someone today were trying to sell you uh, diskettes or fax paper or stuff that is very difficult to sell. It doesn't matter how much of an advertisement you do. I mean, people today don't believe it. The government says inflation is, you know, 8% a year, and people don't buy. You know, the government is saying, don't worry, the dollar is not going to go up. You know, it's going to value. It's, if you try to sell something that nobody wants, uh, I won't say nobody. Again, there's maybe 20, 25% of the population that still wants to hear this. So I, I think the analytical point for you and the challenge for Argentina is what happens to all that, those media outlets when the government changes? Do they all shift and become official of whoever is the official government? Which, again, I don't think it's healthy. Does the new administration distribute resources in a more equitable and balanced way? Which is, again, what I will fight for and what I hope for. Um, but I think these uh, several of the practices that we've seen over the past 10 years are changeable and shiftable, especially if we go in the direction of making more institutional decisions and not the, decision, the decisions that will favor the next government or president, whoever he or she is. Uh, this would, would be the difficulty. If, if we just you know, change the leash and it's the same dog, we haven't done anything. So what we need to do is really change the way that decisions are made, both in Congress and at the executive branch, to be able to support progress in a better way in Argentina. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> we thank you very much for having come to our event today. There is going to be a five-minute inter intermediate, and um, you can have coffee, cookies, periods. Coffee of cookies, that's it. <laughs> so let's uh, give our, our panel a... Uh,